Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Today, as we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer, the title of the series has been, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And today we're coming near the end of what Jesus was teaching us, but perhaps the most personally important portion of the whole teaching. I'm grateful that this week we had the opportunity to pause and to spend some time thinking through our relationship with God. The Ignite meetings this week, led by Jerry White, who is our guest, were times of stirring and encouragement. And I'm very grateful for what God spoke to us as a church through Jerry. I don't know of a man in our generation that I have known personally whom God has used more times in more places to help people encounter the presence of God. It is absolutely vital that you and I understand that what we're doing here today is not being part of a social club. We're not part of a, um, a religious group, even though we would be labeled that way. But what we're doing here today is seeking the face of God wanting to hear his voice, and as he speaks to us, respond to him personally as he leads us and as he guides us. This morning, as we come to this last verse in the teaching, and we're going to look at one other section next week, but as we come to the last petition, the Lord Jesus has taught us about prayer. And the disciples in Luke 11 had said, Lord, teach us to pray, and so he answered them. And it was the only thing they ever asked Jesus to teach him. Because somehow they made the connection with the times that Jesus would withdraw and be alone with God and all the things that happened during the day as a result of that. And they made the connection. Jesus spends time with God, things happen. Jesus spends time with God, he speaks what God tells him to speak. Jesus spends time with God, People's lives are changed. And so they made that connection, say, Lord, teach us to pray. There's something about your prayer life that's very different. And so when he taught them to pray, he says, teach, begin here. He says, our Father, always begin understanding clearly your relationship to God as Father, not as a distant observer in some far corner of the universe, but someone who is intimate, loves you, and who sees you as precious in his sight because of his Son. Our Father. Start there. Until that's a reality to you, he really does not intend that we go further. And then there are the first three petitions, all of them focused on concerns that God has. And so we don't rush into prayer saying, Lord, give me this, give me that. I would like this. Help me with this. But we come into his presence saying first, God, you're my Father. You are precious to me. My knowledge of you has changed me, has cleansed me, has revolutionized me. And so, Lord, let your name be made holy in the sight of every person on the planet. I want everyone to know you the way I know you. And your kingdom, Lord, which is so radically different than the world that we live in, your kingdom, let it come. And your will, Lord, when it's fully expressed, would you let it come 
in this world, the way that you express it in heaven, where there's no sickness, sorrow, suffering, Satan, where none of that exists, but only on earth, Lord, may your will be expressed in my circumstances, in my life. Your will, let it be done. And then he turns the attention to the things that God wants us to be concerned about, about ourselves, the things that we need to pray about. Give us this day our daily bread. And we saw that it was more than just bread. It was everything that was going to happen on that day. You and I tend to be so focused on what's happening tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And he says, focus on one day at a time. I have things that I've fashioned this day for in your life, things for you to do, things I'm going to do in you and through you. Focus on today. Start here. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus never had to pray that prayer. But he said, when you pray, you need to pray that way. Focus on clearing your conscience every day with God and man. Focus on keeping your conscience clear. That's what's on the Father's heart when you come to pray. That's his will for you and me. And then we come to this last petition, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our daily battle with temptation and the devil. He wants you to be praying about that. Everyone is tempted. Everyone here is tempted. Smart people are tempted. Not so smart people are tempted. People of every color and race are tempted. Young people are tempted. Old people are tempted. Single people, married people, divorced people, they're all tempted. Religious people are tempted. Good people are tempted. Bad people are tempted. The question is, how are you handling it? How are you handling this battle with temptation? If you say... Temptation is no big deal for me. I'm really not conscious of being tempted, even on a daily basis. I, don't, I try to live a good life, and I do the best that I can, and so temptation is really no big deal for me. If you're saying that right now at this moment, you have been deceived. Because that is absolutely not the truth. Jesus said, this is vital that you pray about this, that you give attention to this. Only people who resist temptation understand how powerful it is. C.S. Lewis wrote something that was absolutely striking to me some years ago. He said, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation is. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out in the strength of an army, you find the strength of an army by fighting it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows in full what temptation means. A single temptation yielded to in a single moment can destroy you. 
and the consequences can last a lifetime. The Father wants you to come to him about your daily battle. What are we to pray for in our daily battle with temptation? We want to look at this verse and we want to understand it. But there's a question that has stumped Bible teachers and preachers for centuries about this passage. The very first phrase, and lead us not into temptation. The problem worsens when you learn that the word lead means to bring or carry in, to cause someone to enter a place or condition. Lead us not into temptation. Does that mean that if I don't ask God to not lead me into temptation, that he will? What am I asking God to do? God, don't try and get me to sin today. Don't suggest evil to me and try and trap me in sin anymore. Please stop doing that. Is that what it means? A principle Bible interpretation is this. When you encounter a passage that you really don't understand, and it's difficult, and, and it seems to be saying something that's confusing to you, a principle Bible interpretation is to go to other passages on that topic that are clear and that make sense, and you apply those passages to that verse to make sense of it. And so there are four clues that I want to offer you this morning that help us understand what Jesus is teaching us to pray. Clue number one, the Father does not lead you to commit sin. The Father does not, does not, does not lead you to commit sin. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He never tempts anyone to sin. Now, you're in a circumstance. It may be a challenge. It may be a trial. It may be difficult to you. And in the course of that experience, you may have temptation. God is not tempting you. He is not the source of that temptation. What is? Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so the nature of temptation is that the enemy or the world or the flesh puts something in front of me and something in me wants to do or have that that's wrong. And God doesn't cause that. That's inherent in who we are as human beings. It's part of our nature when we're born. And that tension, that, that initial pull, that initial desire, that initial drawing. I talked about two years ago, we used a, a word in physics or acoustics called resonance. And that certain things tempt us, certain things don't, because certain things within us, there's a desire that goes to that. And we resonate with that. We sympathetically vibrate with that. We are attracted to that. God doesn't do that to you. That's in, inherent in who you are at this stage of your journey. So God doesn't lead you to commit sin. Clue number two. The Father does not prevent you from being tempted. Not only does he not lead you to sin, he does not prevent you from being tempted. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Bible says, But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but he will allow you to be tempted. He limits the force of temptation, 
but he never takes away your choice in the midst of temptation. You still have to choose. You still have to make a decision. And so he allows you to experience it. Clue number three. The father and the devil are engaged in an unseen war when you are tested. You see, when you and I are being tempted, we may think, well, it's just me and no one knows what's going on and no one can see what's happening to me, but that's not true. When you are being tempted, there's a conflict in a world that you cannot see that is active in what you are experiencing. The basic meaning of the word for temptation in the original language is the word test. It's the word test. In fact, before the New Testament, the word that's translated temptation, pyrosmos, really didn't have the idea of being tempted to sin. It was just the idea of test. And you pass the test or you fail the test. And so when, when temptation occurs, it may help you, especially when reading verse 13, to understand this concept of a test taking place. And there's two sides to this test. Satan's desire is that you would fail the test by sinning. That's his side of the test. Same circumstance happening to you. God has something going on. We're going to talk about that. But Satan's desire is that you would fail by sinning, that you would actually commit something that, that is offensive to God or that you would react to God or withdraw from God or get mad at God or get angry with God. But his intent is that you would fail the test by sinning. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, be sober to you and me. Be sober, be vigilant to Christians. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, swallow up, render ineffective, destroy. And so you have an enemy. And you are his target. When you're tempted, it's not just a matter of you and this little thing that's happening and do I do it and don't do it and no one else is involved. I know God is there and God says don't do it, so I'm trying not to do it. And I'm just thinking of just me on my own and nothing else is happening. Not true. Satan, the spiritual realm, is actively involved in what's happening to you. There's a test taking place. God's desire is that you would grow a deeper faith and a greater love for him through the test. He wants to accomplish something good through the experience. In fact, the truth is everything the devil throws at you, every circumstance that you experience as a test or what we would call temptation, in every one of those things, there's a way through that that God can use to deepen your faith and grow your love for him. And you actually can come out stronger on the other side. In James chapter 1, the early part of the chapter, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's our word that's translated temptation elsewhere. Various trials, tests. Count it joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. It does something. It changes you. It grows you. It develops you. The very thing the enemy would use to destroy you, God wants to deliver you and do something wonderful as a result. I want to give you one example from Luke 22, verses 31 and 34. It's an example of this two-sided nature of the test or temptation. The setting is the disciples and Jesus after the Last Supper before the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And so it's at this pivotal moment where on this night, Jesus is going to be arrested and the events that lead up to his crucifixion are about to unfold. And it was at this moment in verse 31 of Luke 22 that the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now you can't see this in the English text. But if we translated this into good southern English, Satan has asked for you all. It's plural. Satan has asked for you all that he may sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular. Satan wants to do this to all the disciples. But I have prayed for you, Peter, singular. Satan wanted to destroy all of the apostles, wanted to completely unhinge their view of the world and their very existence. And Peter specifically. And this is what Satan still does. You see, when this was over, in fact, I can just, I can just read it. He says, I have prayed for you, singular, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And so Peter was a target, and this this test was coming to his life, this temptation was coming to his life, and he was being targeted by Satan. Satan was going to sift him, but Jesus prayed for him, and when it was over, Peter, this leader among the group, was going to come back and strengthen the brethren who had also been attacked. Satan always starts with the leadership. He starts with pastors always. He starts with deacons. He starts with Sunday school teachers. He starts with fathers and mothers. He starts with leaders because if he can get them to fall, if he can destroy them, he can take others with him. And so Satan's desired to sift him. Jesus knew that his own arrest was going to be a terrible, terrible test for Peter and all of the disciples. Look at the rest of the verse. But he, Peter, said to Jesus, to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both the prison and the death. Then he said to you, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster should not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So it was going to be a test. Jesus knew it was coming. Peter believed he could follow Jesus in his own strength. I'm never going to deny you. I'm going to go with you to prison. I'll go with you to death. Peter was about to learn that you can never place confidence in yourself when you're being tested or tempted to sin. You can't do it. Do you understand that? People who understand that you can't have confidence in yourself, they're the ones that pray about temptation. When you understand this, you pray. But if you think, I got this, Lord, it's just a regular day, nothing significant's going to happen, I don't need to worry about this day, I'm not concerned. I got this, Lord. Thank you for hearing me. Amen. 
People like that are fully and completely unprepared for what's about to come when it comes. And Peter was not prepared. Notice the two sides of this test for Peter. On Satan's side, he's about to sift Peter. Now, what does it mean to sift? Sift was a two-stage agricultural process in the ancient world. It involved threshing and winnowing. Threshing wheat involved taking the wheat on a hard surface and beating it on the ground to separate the wheat kernels from the chaff. You beat it on something. You beat it on the ground. That was the threshing. It was beaten. And then you took, by some mechanism, either a screen or a pitchfork, and you threw it up in the air when there was a light breeze. And the light breeze would carry the chaff away, and the heavier grains of wheat would fall back to the ground. And so it was tossed, it was shaken, it was beaten. Satan planned to use the arrest to destroy Peter. You know, during the arrest, Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. John tells us that, no one else does. In Luke, it just says a, one of the disciples pulled his sword. And Jesus told him, no, we don't do that. And at that moment, Peter knew he was beaten. He, he couldn't defend himself. He can't take care of this situation. He doesn't have the resources to do it in his own strength. He's beaten. Later on, he's standing by the campfire. A little girl comes up, says, you were with him. This man was with him. And Peter denies any relationship, any knowledge, any association with Jesus Christ in an effort to protect himself. I can handle this. I can protect myself. He does it by denying that he knows Jesus denying his love for him, and he's shaken. It says he goes out and weeps bitterly. Now, that was Satan's side. Satan desired to sift Peter, to beat him, to shake him. And when you have a test, it can feel like your whole world is being shaken. But there's another side to this testing in Peter's life. There's God's side. God planned to use the arrest to change Peter. Notice Jesus says, Satan has asked that he might sift all of you. Jesus knew what was coming. Why should we pray about temptation every day? Because Jesus knows what is coming. I don't. And I find that comforting. That he knows when the bad stuff's coming. He knows when it's going to be difficult. And he, he knows how to prepare me. Jesus did not keep Peter from the test. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He does not spare Peter from the test. We live in a world that is broken by sin, dominated by Satan. And there's this spiritual battle going around you and me every day. And God does not keep us from those battles. Jesus did pray that Peter would make it through the test with his faith intact. He said, I pray that your faith should not fail. So when Jesus uses the word temptation, when he says, do not lead us into temptation, he's referring to the basic idea of a test. A test always has two sides. So let's go through our clues again. The first clue, the, what does it mean, lead us not into temptation? The first clue is the Father never leads you to commit sin. So it has nothing to do with that. Secondly, he does not prevent you from being tempted. 
So when it says, lead us not into temptation, it's not suggesting that God somehow is going to keep you from the experience of temptation. And when temptation testing comes, it's a manifestation of an unseen war that's raging around you. When that moment comes, there are two sides at work. Satan wants to destroy you. God wants to deliver you to himself. That brings us to clue number four, the last clue. The Father wants you, to, wants you to protect you. I didn't word that right, did I? The Father wants to protect you from being overwhelmed during times of testing. The Father wants to protect you from being overwhelmed during times of testing. Now, this passage, lead us not into temptation. It really helps when you have a difficult passage to go somewhere else in the Scripture and find something that sounds very similar that sheds more light on it. And there is such a verse, even in Matthew. It's Matthew 26, 41. Jesus is with the disciples in the garden. Listen to what he says to them, Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Lead us not into temptation means to bring or carry someone into a place. Watch and pray so that you are not, that you may not enter into temptation. Also has the idea of entering or going into temptation. But now Jesus says watch and pray. I believe that Jesus is saying that spiritual ignorance and insensitivity is deadly and dangerous to your soul. Going through life blind and unprepared for what's coming makes you fodder for the enemy, puts you in a place where defeat is almost certain. And he didn't call us to live that way, just to get battered around, fully unprepared for what's coming. The things Jesus leads to you on a daily basis are preparing you for the things that are coming. Your time alone with him and the scriptures he leads you to read are preparing you for the things that are coming. The things he leads you to pray about, the people that come to mind, the family members that he leads you to pray for is preparing you and them for things that are coming. The enemy will take your hard times. If you don't do that, he'll take your hard times and make them horrendous. He'll take normal emotions and he will grow them and blow them up so they are emotions that are completely out of control in your life. Worry will become phobia. He'll take manageable problems and make them mountains that are impossible to manage. He'll cause you to question God's love and care for you. He'll cause you to lash out and blame God for what's happening for everything that's going wrong in your life. Now the question you need to be asking is how can Satan do that? How can he take my circumstances and exacerbate them, make them worse and worse and worse so that I feel overwhelmed and doomed? How does that happen? Why does that happen? How can I keep that from happening? Um, let me ask some, I need some help. Um, uh, Todd, come up here a second. Have y'all seen the play this week? You need to go see the play if you haven't. Some of these kids and this guy is in it. They did good. They did good. 
Todd, I've got some checkers in here. Seriously. Okay? Come over here. Some are red checkers and some are black. Okay? I want you to pick out some red ones. Okay? But you can't see. You just, you just got to reach in there and pick out the red one. All right? All right, so go ahead. Pick one out. Uh, not so hot. Go ahead and put that one down. No, no, you can put it. Yeah, right there. There you go. Pick out another one. Hmm. I put the same number of black and red in there. Pick out another one. There you go. All right. Good job. Okay, so you, you picked out three of them, and two were black, and one was red. Okay? Now, let's try it again. All right? Hold on. Hold on. Okay, put your hand in there. Okay, kind of go towards the crowd. Reach down and grab what you see there with, with your hand. Grab that. Bring it up. Put it down. You got another red one. Put it, reach in the same spot. Go all the way towards the front. Get to another spot. Put it, got another one. All right. Go ahead. Now reach all the way to the back, opposite direction, and take the first one there. Ah, three for three. Thank you, Todd. Why was he able to do that? Why was he able to make the right decision the second time and get the red one every time? Why? Because he had guidance. He had help. He couldn't see what was coming. He didn't know what was there. He couldn't see it. But I did. I knew what was there. And I could get him to where he needed to be. He still had to put his hand in there and get the checkers. He still had to deal with what was there. He still had to experience the experience of reaching for checkers blind. But I got him through it. I gave him what he needed. I helped him with the information that he needed to get through that moment where he did not understand what was going on. I can't see the enemy. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is saying, watch and pray so that you don't enter in the temptation. What is he saying? He's saying, I can't see the enemy. I don't know what he's planning as a human being. I don't know what he's planning. I'm not smart enough to outwit the devil. I'm not smart enough to defeat the devil. But God is. The Father is. And you and I get up in the morning. We don't bother to talk to him about it. We don't even consider it. We don't even think about what may be coming for me on that day. And we are totally unprepared. And we consequently are totally defeated. The Father doesn't want you to live that way. Christians are overwhelmed by the devil's attacks because they do not go to the Father daily for guidance and protection. I want to take a moment and read something before I give you the things we are supposed to pray for. Um, I wrote this in a journal about nine years ago when I was traveling about 40,000 miles a year in Arkansas. And um, well, let me just read what I wrote. And I, I made it something that I could share, so I edited it. Traveling over 40,000 miles a year in Arkansas, I used to spend several nights a month on the road. About two years into this routine, I walked into one particularly drafty motel room on a cold Saturday afternoon, pushed the door closed with my foot, and setting my bags down on the thin, worn carpet. Surveying the room in the dim light, there were two double beds with a nightstand, a small round table, a chair, and a long bureau with a TV sitting on top. Nothing unusual, but a little more drab than usual. Think early 60s Bates Motel, 
the core and you'll have the picture. It was in that particular motel that God spoke to me about the temptation to watch things on television where no one else could see what I might be doing except him. As I stood there looking at the room, he brought to mind how many times I'd been tempted before. And up to that moment, I'd done two things. I'd prayed a lot on the road when I was going to have to stay in a hotel. I would have fellowship with the Lord in the cars I traveled, and I believe that was vital. But I would also call my wife as an escape, exposing the temptation by telling her about it. And it worked. By uncovering, instead of hiding a temptation, I found that I didn't want to anymore. The attraction and pull of the sin dissipated and became more manageable. But this moment was different. God spoke to me, and this is what he said. You don't know what has gone on here in the past, but I do, and they haven't left. The thoughts that formed in my mind were his thoughts, and he was showing me something that I needed to understand. Frozen in place, standing in the middle of that motel room, I began to understand that I had been experiencing a pattern of temptation that was more intense in some places than in others. Hundreds of people had stayed in that room before me. Hundreds of nights, hundreds of temptations. It was a place where a husband had cheated on his wife, where a woman had degraded herself, where a young man had tried to drown his troubles in alcohol or drugs, and where a child had been abused. I don't know the details. I do know that in some hotels I experienced much more temptation than in others, and it was happening there. I knew that demons can take up residence in people. I realized in that moment they can also hang out in hotel rooms. Interestingly, when Jesus cast the demons out of the Gadarene man, the evil ones, quote, begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of that country, Mark 5. They liked that place. They wanted to stay in that geographical region. And for whatever reason, they were attached to that motel room I was in, exacerbating the away-from-home temptations of every man and woman who stayed there night after night and year after year. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The Greek word simply translated place can refer to someone's territory or a dwelling, but in some contexts it can also describe a sanctuary or a holy place. Paul is teaching that strong, out-of-control emotions like anger can create a point of entry for the devil into a person's life. If I fail to process my emotions and hurts before the Lord, letting him into my hurts and exercising forgiveness, then I am allowing myself to be unduly and persistently influenced by a demon. Seriously. To give in to sin is an invitation to the enemy to come and camp out in my life. And I knew this, standing there in the middle of that motel room. So I didn't call my wife that night. I called him. I prayed, Lord, I don't know what's going on in this place before I got here. But I do know I'm being tempted to use this place as a hideout for my own sin. And I don't want that. So Lord, I want this to be holy ground. I want to be here alone with you. I want this room to be a place 
where at any time you can speak to me without interference from my enemy. Just you and me, nobody else. And everything changed. The demons had a bad night. I had time alone with him. The dreary room had become a sacred place, and so did my heart. What are we to pray for in our daily battle with temptation? I'm to pray daily for two things. First, he says, do not lead us into temptation. I need to pray that the Father would protect me from being unaware and unprepared for intense, destructive forms of testing. I need to ask him for that. That's what he means when he says, do not lead us into temptation. It's not that God ever would. It's that I'm asking him to do the exact opposite of that. Instead of leading me into temptation, I'm asking him to carry me away from it. Those destructive forms. Will I experience testing? Yes. Will I feel temptation? Yes. But not at the levels that are overwhelming and destructive. And he has a way that I can go through this. And he'll carry me away from it. Secondly, I'm to pray daily, deliver us from the evil one. What am I praying? I'm praying that the Father would rescue me from the evil one. In some translations it just says deliver us from evil. It is masculine. It is referring to a person. It's not referring to an evil thing, an evil work, an evil act, an evil circumstance. It's referring to an evil person. Deliver us from the evil one. That the Father would rescue me from the evil one and his plan to destroy me through temptation. You have an enemy who never sleeps and who is working every day to dismantle your life. And I'm talking to Christians. If you understand the scripture, a person without Christ is already in the domain of darkness and fully under the influence of the enemy. That's why we have to pray for people that don't know Christ. But for the Christian, you need to know that he's not finished with you when you're saved. When you put your trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in and you are born again and he changes you, the devil is not finished with you. He's just heating it up. And he has methods. The only use of the word methods in the New Testament is a Greek word, methodius, and it refers to what Satan is planning to do to you. He has methods. He has strategies. He has plans. He has evil intent. He is a liar. He is a murderer. He is the evil one. And you are his target. Jesus says, in the face of that, knowing that you live in this world where the wheels are coming off spiritually, that you need every day to go to your Father and say, Oh God, May I know victory today in every test, in every temptation. May I know victory today through your word and your spirit, your power and your presence in my life. May I know victory today. 
And you're praying that after saying, Lord, may your name, let it be, let it be made holy. God, your kingdom, let it come. Your will may be done on earth. Give me the things I need today. Father, I want to clear my conscience with you and the people that I, I've, that, that I've hurt, the people that owe me, the, peop- the things I've done to you. Lord, I want to clear my conscience. And then, Lord, then I'm ready to say, give me victory in the battle today. Deliver me from the evil one. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know how the Lord wants you to respond this morning. I do know that there's not a person here that doesn't need to take Matthew 6, 13 seriously. Every one of us here needs to recognize the battle that we're in and cry out to God for help. Some of you, like Peter this morning, you may find yourself completely overwhelmed by some kind of circumstance or test or temptation in your life. I'm standing here as your brother in Christ, and I want to say to you, God has a way for you out of this, through this, to the other side. But you can't do it on your own. And you can't do it without Him. And you can't do it by keeping doing what you've been doing. So in these moments when we stand and sing, You may just need to bow your head. The altar's open. Feel free to come here and pray. We're here to pray with you. We experience the same things as your pastors. As your brothers in Christ will lift you up and pray with you. Cry out with you that the Father would lead you to victory. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you not to listen to anything else except the truth about yourself. God has said that every human being has sinned and is separated from him and his love and his plan and and the purpose that he made you for. You may know that. You may not know that. You may know it because you've experienced it. And you may sit here and know that your life is broken and that all you can do is make it worse. And you need a Savior. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, taking your sin with him, was buried and raised again by the power of God so that every person that puts their trust in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and transformed by his power and presence in their life. If you'd like to trust Christ today and own him as your Savior and Lord, I invite you to come. If you have questions, we'll share scripture with you. We'll help make it clear. As God leads, how you respond to him. Our Father, thank you. We thank you that there is hope, that every time we experience hopelessness, we know that's not the truth about our circumstances. That you have a plan that goes far beyond whatever the devil intends to rescue us, to give us victory, to change us, 
to draw us closer to yourself. For that person struggling to believe that right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch them. Speak to them, encourage them. Draw them. Drive away the darkness. Set them free. Enable them to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.